Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm golf course industry editor-in-chief Guy Cipriano. I'm joined by my friend and our managing editor, Matt Lowell, for episode number 41 of the Greens with Envy podcast, the series where Matt and I discuss the places we've been and the people we've met. And for this episode, we're going to focus on Kansas City. Matt and I were both there visiting a lot of golf courses and eating, well, at least me, not him so much, a lot of barbecue. Before I bring Matt in and we start talking about the courses, a few things going on here with us at Golf Course Industry. If you don't subscribe to our Fast and Firm newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday, go to the website, subscribe. We have a lot of digital content dropping this month. We even have a new member of our team, our summer editorial assistant, Cassidy Gladeau, and she's already pumping out content. And we just have content coming from all places, including your peers. So you can do that on the website at golfcourseindustry.com. Just go under the subscribe tab and you get fast and firm sent to you every Tuesday. Uh, One other housekeeping item. We just finished our June issue, which has a long, long, long cover package about an app that probably many of you use. We're not going to give too much away, Matt. TikTok. Snapchat. QQ. Friendster. I'm running out of them. Bumble, Tinder, any of those. Well, those are, those are apps of a different kind, yes. Anyway, I'm sure you're familiar with this app. That'll be hitting the mailboxes soon, but let's get to the point of this podcast. Matt and I, a few weeks ago, spent some time in Kansas City, a place where, you know, truthfully, we haven't been too much here at Golf Course Industry. So it was great to get on the ground and observe some golf courses in a part of the country that has some really great golf and Matt, my first impressions were the topography of Kansas City. I thought Kansas and Missouri are... Midwest states, plain states, depending on your definition of geography and boundaries. And I I thought it would be relatively flat golf, but uh, that really wasn't the case. Kansas City gets clumped in with the rest of the Great Plains. And the Great Plains are called the Great Plains for a reason, because they are plains. They are very flat. Kansas City is kind of on the edge of those and kind of has rolling topography up and down, Parts of it almost feel, I'm not going to go as far as to say parts of Kansas City feel like Appalachia, but there is a course that I visited that felt a little bit like another course in Pittsburgh that I saw last year. And walking around, I got got very heavy uh, Western Pennsylvania vibes, not too far from Appalachia. I did too at one of the courses I visited. Pittsburgh? No, in Kansas City. No, no, but Pittsburgh vibes? At one of the courses I visited in Kansas City, in fact, I... Who we'll talk about the people we went around with as the podcast yeah. goes on. But I, I told the two people I was with, I go, this reminds me of where I'm from, Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. So Kansas City gets clumped in with that, but there's there's a lot there. And the weather, too. I mean, we're talking about topography, but the weather is just wild. They can get winter. They can get ice storms. And yet they can also get to about 104 in August. It is such extremes. In Kansas City, if you are a turf pro in Kansas City, in that metro area, you are probably very good at your job. And that's to anybody that works on a golf course, and especially anybody that works on a golf course in the transition zone. Oh, I mean, the transition zone in general, which is only getting farther north and farther south. The transition zone is going to be the entire United States at some point. Uh, But yeah, we hit, what, officially five courses in Kansas City? Probably more than that when you consider uh, some of the ones that I went to had more than one golf course. True, true. Five facilities. You know, Matt and I 
instead of going to facilities together, we had a, a day there where we could go to a lot of courses and we did the divide and conquer approach. And Matt, let's talk about the first one you went to. You got to see our friend Bill Irving at Wolf Creek. Tell, tell our listeners about that experience and seeing that club. Well, I had talked with Bill a few times over the phone, but I had never had the opportunity to visit Wolf Creek, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Bill's Wolf Creek is in Olathe. That's on the Kansas side. Great history. I'm going to believe that most of it is true. I think there were a handful of gentlemen on a hunting trip in the late 60s, and they found the land on a hunting trip, said this would make a good golf course, and, and <laughs> three, four years later, uh, it was just absolutely gorgeous. Great crew. Bill could not have been more giving with his time. We spent most of a morning together. I think I was with him for three hours, and he said at least a handful of times, if I'm talking too much, no, Bill, that's what I'm here for is to listen to you. And uh, thankfully, he talked plenty. There will be an online story on golfcourseindustry.com coming up in the next week or two, finally. Met uh, met his assistants, met uh, his actually superintendent, Sean Berger, uh, and a handful of assistants. Great, great guy uh, who's been there for more than 30 years, Mike McClelland. He's done basically every job. Had a chance to talk with him for a while. Uh, just a great group and really special property. Uh, they've had some major projects there. They've tested out some new products there. They are actually in the midst of doing a clubhouse renovation at the moment that should be done in the summer. But really challenging course. Not penal, but challenging. And uh, just a beautiful, beautiful patch of land out there on the western part of the Casey metro area. Matt, after spending some time with Bill and his team, what makes him a successful operation in your mind? Among other things, Bill has a tremendous personnel infrastructure there. I'd, I'd mentioned his superintendent, uh, Sean Berger, and he's not afraid to deploy things to Sean. And under Sean, there are two assistants, uh, Clayton Schwartz and Austin, I can't remember if it's Banze or Banzit. B-A-N-Z-E-T, Austin, if you're listening, I apologize for not remembering how to pronounce your surname. And a great group of folks who've been there for 7, 10, 12 years, who know the property, who know the ins and outs. And Bill's not afraid to say, look, I've been in the turf industry a long time, but you've been at this property a long time. So let's collaborate and you tell me what I need to know and I'll tell you what you need to know and let's work together and and we'll make this a great property. I wish it had been a little warmer. Uh, you would expect that in May, but uh, probably probably good for the turf uh, to a certain degree to not be baking quite so early. It'll bake plenty later in the summer. Anything else about Wolf Creek? Well, I do want to save a little bit for the, the story that's coming up here in the next week or two, but I will I will say any of these courses that we discussed today, if you're in the Kansas City area, and you work in the industry, and you want to see some great, great courses, great properties, great topography, beautiful agronomy, give Bill a call. And if he's in town, I'm, I'm going to bet that he would say, sure, come out, let's talk a little bit, uh, especially if you're a fellow turf head. Just an incredible spot to spend a morning, and uh, I'm glad I didn't play because I probably would have shot about 140. We have a lot to get through, so let's get to... Your first one, Milburn Country Club. You you packed a lot. Did you go to four courses in a day? Yeah, and yeah. one that, that's going to be built. That's true. That's true. Okay, so let's start with Milburn. 
I cheated on this trip, Matt. I'll okay. admit this to our listeners right now. I had a tour guide. I had a tremendous <laughs> tour yeah, guide. You did. Golf course architect Todd Clark grew up in Kansas City. He has more active projects and probably past projects than maybe any golf course architect that's wor- worked in that market. A super nice guy. He was a guest on the Tartan Talks podcast last year. Got to interview him for that. Got to meet him finally in person during the American Society of Golf Course Architects meeting when they came to Cleveland last fall. And then uh, I let him know that we were coming to town for the event that we were coming to town for. And I had a day to look at golf courses. And he handled the whole day for me, Matt. Well, (laughs) he planned a pretty ambitious day. And you're someone who doesn't need help planning ambitious trips. I felt lazy because (laughs) I, I, I... all I had to do was make a phone call to Todd, and we had all these visits arranged. So I landed at Kansas City at about 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, and by 11:15 a.m., I was at Milburn Country Club. Impressive. A very solid club. Well, anyway, pull through this neighborhood, and you have no idea you're near a golf course. Driving through the neighborhood, going through homes, going through you know streets that have two lanes, you see this modern clubhouse. Well, the club was established in 1917, but there was a clubhouse fire in 2010, which is odd because when you hear about clubhouse fires, usually they happen in the you know 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And many of the clubs we visit, Matt, have had a clubhouse fire at one point or another in their history. This one was a bit different because it happened in 2010. They rebuilt the clubhouse. You see this modern clubhouse and then get on the golf course with Todd Clark and Superintendent Steve Wilson. And it's just awesome, solid, play every day type of country club. Uh, William Langford was the architect. He's one of the really good golden age architects that you don't hear as much about as maybe some of the other ones. The course has rolling land. We talked about the topography. It was the first time that I had been on a golf course in Kansas City. And right away, just uh, the land struck me. I mean, perfect for golf. None of the holes were flat, but none of them had too severe of an elevation change. We'll get to that later in the podcast with some of the other courses that we visited and the Western Pennsylvania analogies that we made, but Mm -hmm. uh, big greens, you know, over four acres of bent POA greens. And you think about that transition zone, over four acres of greens, private club expectations. That's no easy ask. And Steve Wilson, from what I could tell and from what I've been told, is one of the best in the business at producing great greens year after year, season after season. And I'm going to actually write a story about his uh, philosophy, so I don't want to tip my hand too much. It's going to be a good summer greens management help type story that we'll have on the the website. We, we did say we're going to have a lot of digital content, yeah. but the well, greens have a lot of slope. In fact, the club has done parts of a master plan with Todd Clark. And one thing they haven't done is the greens, even though they're old push-up greens, they haven't gone to USGA greens because Steve and his team do such a damn good job of maintaining those greens that they the thinking is that, that let's just keep a good thing. Why tear apart a good thing? You know, if, if Steve and his team can continually produce these conditions with the infrastructure they have, why tamper with it? Because the greens really do make the golf course. They are fascinating putting surfaces. Like I said, the topography really struck me. And then a lot of shape, shape to the hole, you know, right to left, left to right. There wasn't a dominant uh, way you could play any of the holes. And, you know, Todd Clark through master planning work has continually made the golf course better, uh, found a, a way to add, you know, a range that had more space and you know, modern practice facilities. It's a club that just keeps getting better. And one of those, you know, we visit a lot of places where you, you're like, how are they going to make this place better? And then you go back two years later and you're like, 
they found a way to make it better. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get better in the sense that Steve Wilson and his team are getting a new maintenance facility. Uh, that project's going to start this summer, and Steve's really excited about that. Uh, got my first – I've been on zoysia grass fairways before, but it's definitely the dominant – uh, fairway turf species in the Kansas City market, and all all the facilities I visited had zoysia grass fairways, and got to see them play. It was a really cold, raw day, but there were some members playing, and the zoysia did have a little bit of bounce. And uh, one thing that struck me too was just the number of dog legs on the courses huh. I visited. I, I don't know if Kansas City's the dog leg capital of the United States. I can make a really bad joke about dog legs and Kansas you, City you, golf courses. Are and you I dubbing did, it you, that right now? I'm not going to make that joke, but you heard it. Well, a you're few not making times. a joke, but are you just calling it that? It may be. I mean, maybe okay. it's just the courses I saw. I don't know if you noticed it on the courses you visited, but I saw a lot of dogleg holes on uh, the facilities I was at and really cool holes that had some strategy. But uh, Milburn was just a, like I said, just a special place. Over 600 trees have been re- removed in the last 10 years. You talk about making it better and better. Uh, you know, Steve Wilson told me there have almost been no major layout changes to William Langford's design. So it does have that fi- feel. And they got some projects. Uh, that are going to be done here in the next few years. I, I can't wait to go back there again. And I really got spoiled never being on a Kansas City golf course, and, and that's the first one I've seen. <laughs> and you got spoiled seeing Wolf, Wolf Creek right away. Well, I got spoiled by Wolf Creek in the morning. And before we get to this, anything else you want to talk about? on? No, I, I really enjoyed my time with Steve Wilson. I was really rushed in my day. I had to hustle from visit to visit because well, yeah. of the day that Todd set, <laughs> set up for me. But uh, Steve struck me as the the humble superintendent that's been doing it for a long time, knows his stuff. Uh, once you get him to open up, he'll tell you anything. In fact, he did, for a short period of time, work for the GCSAA, but missed being on a golf course too much and returned to it. You know, of course, Kansas is the home of the GCSAA right down the road in Lawrence, what, about an hour from Kansas City? Yeah, about an hour, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they're probably – Dozens of superintendents just like Steve in Kansas City, too. So just so glad that I got to, to meet him. His team does tremendous work. He grew up near the golf course. He grew up near Milburn Country Club. And uh, I, this is somebody you could see that you know started the job in 2013, somebody you could see that could have this job as long as he wants, and he really seems to enjoy working there and producing the product that he does for that membership. So, Matt, after Wolf Creek, you went to Mission Hills, another right. special layout that has a great reputation in Kansas City. What did you learn during that visit, and how would you describe the, the the course and the people that you met? Right. So you said you were spoiled with Milburn Country Club. I was spoiled in the morning with Wolf Creek and then spoiled again uh, in the afternoon with Mission Hills. It is 108 years old, originally designed by Tom Bendelo. Great, great turf team there. Spent uh, most of the afternoon with Justin Hunt, who, hard to believe, he's in his sixth year there. Uh, good guy. Walking on, actually driving on uh, to the to the parking lot, and then w- walking around the property, and then riding uh, in a car for a while, almost immediately got not just Western Pennsylvania vibes, but got very heavy Fox Chapel vibes. So I was there a little more than a year ago, and by the time I think there were about eleven months between going to Fox Chapel and going to Mission Hills. The similarities, they both feel like very tight properties. Mission Hills is 110 acres, 100 of which are the golf course. Uh, Fox Chapel, I can't remember exactly the size, but it felt pretty small. But surrounded on all sides by local roads, there are the backs of homes lining 
large chunks of the course, not just fairways, but homes of a certain size and a certain vintage. They're not these huge new homes. They're older homes built in the 20s, probably not the 30s, but the 40s, uh, somewhere in between the 10s and the 1910s and the early 40s. And then on the course itself, it just felt like they were almost sister courses in terms of uh, trees, in terms of kind of that rolling topography. It was just a constant up and down at Mission Hills. And then the one thing was that a lot of the fairways were squared off, and that's something that uh, that they've been working on there, that Justin's been working on the last couple of years. It really felt like an East Coast course, and that was that was more what Justin called it, but it did feel, to me at least, like that Western Pennsylvania course. And and Mission Hills, a beautiful, beautiful little town. I went to a, a bookstore there actually right afterward. It's like I can't pass up a bookstore and just this charming, charming downtown within sight of the golf course. Uh what a what a gem. And uh I know we keep saying this. I do plan to write a little bit about this later on in the year for a print issue, a shorter story for the print issue. You mean we have to write stories about the places we go to? I thought we just got to go and uh, walk or drive around and hang out with super interesting people and not do yeah. anything after that. Yeah, we do We do write stories eventually, and, and you already mentioned Fast and Firm, but in case folks don't realize it, if they think we're just a podcast, we do have a website, golfcourseindustry.com, lots and lots of news about courses, about news releases from from companies and whatnot. And there is a magazine. If you don't get it already, it is free to subscribe. If you are in the industry, you can subscribe directly on the website, uh, golfcourseindustry.com slash subscribe, I think, is the link. That makes too much sense. But yes, we do write stories every now and then. We don't just talk into microphones for a living. And speaking of email communication, hmm. have you ever been to a, a golf facility? that has more than 40,000 recipients on its e-blast, has an 18-hole course that does more than 60,000 rounds a year in a cool-weather environment, and also has a 36-hole facility that does close to 120,000 rounds. Those are stunning numbers. I'm still trying to get over the 40,000 email subscriber list. So after Milburn Country Club, I followed Todd Clark's pickup truck and my little rental car to the city of Overland Park, to see their golf operation. And our first stop was Sykes Lady Overland Park Golf Club. You know what we did right when we got to the course, Matt? Well, you didn't drink a beer and you didn't play, so I don't know. We ate lunch. And why is this important to our listeners? Well, I've never seen a food and beverage operation as sophisticated and modern as the one at Sykes Lady. So you didn't go into the – there was no member's lounge. There was no huge oak-laden – Dining room. How did you eat? I had lunch with Todd, his associate, Brett Hugo, uh, the city of Overland Park's manager of golf and grounds, Doug Melcher, the superintendent at Sykes Lady, Tom Story, and the superintendent at the city's 18-hole course, St. Andrew's Golf Club, Mark Sabalewski. And why is this important? Because this is what municipal public golf dining could be. They opened a new clubhouse in 2020. Food was great. You know, views of the course, all sorts of outdoor seating. But the thing that I really found fascinating was their grab-and-go counter, which was really grab-and-go. So imagine what you see at a convenience store where you go in, 
and get your sandwich, fill up your cup of coffee or your soda, pay at the counter and leave instead of waiting in a line, beer cooler. That's the food and beverage operation they have at uh, Sykes Lady. They're absolutely killing it in the two years that it's been open. And it makes so much sense, right? Like you're playing golf. You're stopping at the turn or getting ready to play. You don't want to have to wait forever to get a hamburger or a hot dog. You want to get it and get back out on the course and keep play going. Uh, I'm surprised that we don't have more of this at golf facilities where it truly is grab and go. It sounds like we They will. have the candy bars out. They have the snacks out. I mean, they do have a person working behind the counter to make sure that people aren't stealing anything and to get the beer when people want that. But uh, this place is a complete golf factory. I've never hmm. seen municipal operation in a cool weather environment pump out the amount of golf that they do. So we're having lunch, and I'm talking to, to Doug and Tom and Mark about how they get all the work done, and my head's just spinning because – Doug Melcher started as an intern there, then became a course superintendent, and now is the manager of the whole turf <laughs> and outdoor operation. It's the only facility he really knows. So to him, it's it's normal, right? He's telling me these numbers. He's telling me how much play they get. And I, my head's already spinning from this day that Todd Clark has set up for me and jumping from one place to the next. And then you hear some of these numbers. For example, at Sykes Lady, they start play in three waves. Okay. Because they, they have 27 regulation holes and then so a nine-hole par 10, three 19. course. Yep. So they okay. have 727, then another one around noon, and then another one around 4, 430. They have waves of play go off. And on a busy day, get this, they can have over 700 golfers come through the facility. It's a lot. This is another good number. So when the food and beverage operation opened at the new clubhouse, Doug was telling me that their, their goal was seven hundred fifty dollars to $800,000 a year in food and beverage. They reached 1.9 million in 2021. I was going to guess two. That's they're going to be over two million this year. So Sykes and Lady, you know, the the 20, 36 holes are on about 300 acres, huge greens, wow, giant greens. But they have a nine pin rotation that they go through to disperse all that play. It's the numbers jarring. here, are, yeah, I was going to say staggering. Yeah, okay, 26 acres of bent grass poiana greens and collars that they treat for. And it was a cold, raw day. I mean, we were going around golf courses on the same day, but it was still pretty busy. I'd say the the uh, parking lot was about two-thirds full, and they said their days were, you know, on a busy afternoon, you can't even get a parking spot. People are parking in one of the main roads in Overland Park to play this golf course. So then we go from there to St. Andrews to see the, the ci- city's other course, the 18-hole course, and they do 60,000 rounds a year at St. Andrews. It was <laughs> packed on the day we we were there. Uh, These are just silly numbers. Pretty interesting because, oh, around a little over 10 years ago, they had to reroute six holes on the golf course to build a youth soccer complex. So Todd Clark came in and did the six new holes. They built the youth soccer complex. The youth soccer, soccer complex has been a, a hit for the city. You know, travel teams coming from all over the United States and the world, bringing money into Overland Park, Kansas. And, uh, you know, St. Andrews was a bit of a more would it course, I would say, than Sykes and Lady. Uh, doing a bunker project right now, where in house they're 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 doing a few holes a year. Mark and his team are doing a great job with that, and uh, yeah, we had to kind of haul around the course because of the next visit. But it was really cool to see a municipal operation, uh, fifty four holes, that busy. Like I said, I was at Angel Park in Las Vegas earlier this year, which we talked about on a past greens with Envy, and that, I thought that was a golf factory, and it is, but. When you consider that Kansas City does get snow and there are times a year where you just can't play golf to do over 60,000 rounds on 18 holes and then 150 
15,000 rounds on 36 holes with three nine regulation nine hole courses and a par three course. Those are just jarring numbers. I mean, the par three course does over 30,000 rounds a year. It's affiliated <laughs> with the first tee. It's a, it's an example of a municipality that does golf, right? There's no management company involved. They, their own people do it. The city has gotten to the golf game in the early 1970s and it's never been subsidized by taxpayers, wow. according to Doug. So they're completely self-sufficient, huge asset to the community. People from all over the Kansas City metro area and even beyond come and play those golf courses. They got leagues going off uh, at night. I mean, Doug, Mark, and Tom have a really good relationship, and they play in leagues together. So to me, that's the sign of a quality facility. If people want to spend time there recreating there after working there all day, to me, that's a sign that it's a pretty darn good place to to work and play. There's some superintendents that just, when they're done, they don't want anything to do with the golf course. And that's right. cool. And I completely understand that. But you know, our friend Thad Thompson up at Terry Hills, mm-hmm. you know Bata- what he does, Bata- you know what he does on weeknights? He's in like three leagues at his own course, at his own facility, three or four. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you're at a facility where you actually want to spend time there playing golf in leagues after you're done with your work day, that's the sign that you're probably at a place that has a pretty good, work culture mm-hmm. and play culture. Mm-hmm. But my head is even still spinning. It's been a month since being at, at these courses, and I just could not believe the numbers that Doug was rattling off. I'm going to do a story either in our August or September issue about heavy play municipal courses. I'm going to include Angel Park in Las Vegas. I'm going to include the city of Overland Park's facilities, and I'm probably going to pick somewhere in Florida too. And uh, yeah, you'll get hit with a lot of numbers in that story. Okay. It seems like a guy kind of story and we'll leave how they get all the work done for that story (laughs) that's the trick that's the trick so you go from overland park to a very different kind of course mostly because it's not actually a course yet this was your last oh no they have a course so i'll explain okay so i misinterpreted this so oakwood country club it's actually on the national historic register list so you pull in and you see the uh the plaque at the gate uh this is a really uh, cool club that's oh, been I around for a long time. I must have been hinting at the course we're not going to talk about here. In 2020, okay. All right. it was purchased by Ken Block, who's one of the, the biggest real estate developers, really, in, in, in that part of the country. He grew up playing the course, and the club was on a bit of a decline, and he wanted to make sure that the club could have a future. So he purchased it in 2020, and he's been putting a lot of money into it. And How much? Do you know? Millions. How about we'll leave it at that? Okay. Which, you know, millions is a relative thing, right? Like, you know, five million gets you more in Kansas City than probably five million will get you in Florida or Long Island or somewhere. So I don't know the exact number. I didn't really pry too much into it, but uh, renovating the golf course, they built some new holes. Uh, Todd Clark is working with uh, Ron Witten, who used to be the golf architecture editor of Golf Digest. Mm-hmm. I think he's now got the emeritus title. He's an absolute legend in the golf course writing uh, world. He's one of the first people that really made a career of writing just about golf courses and not the people that play the game. And Ron, quite frankly, is one of my writing idol idols. And he met Todd and I out there. So it was a joy to have him there. And we went around and saw some of the changes they're making to the 18-hole golf course. And they're doing it fast, right? Like, Mr. Block wants things done, and he wants them done tomorrow. He's that type of developer, and there are a lot of those in the golf industry that want things done fast and done right and done at a high level and heavily wooded property, lots of topography. Like I said, it reminded me of Western Pennsylvania. I couldn't believe Mm -hmm. there are hills like this in Kansas City, some really, really steep 
approach shots and tee shots. The first hole just has a great view of um, the golf that is setting up in front of you. It's an elevated tee box. Uh, practice facilities have been renovated, so they have a short game area. And how cool is this? So Ron Witten uh, observed how the, the course was being played and different shots that people were playing on the course. And him and Todd Clark designed the short game area so that there are 18 different spots on it that replicate shots that are played out on the golf course. That's cool. And it was really cool. The night that we were there, uh, I was there with Superintendent Brent Racer, spent some time with us. Uh, he's been there ne- there for a few years. I think when he took the job, he didn't realize all this construction was going to be doing done, <laughs> but he's done a really good job of managing it all and keeping a level head about it. But there were some women's clinics going on, and you know, it, it, the, the short game area actually has its own scorecard to, to let you know where the shots, the different types uh. of the shots that can be played are, and then we went down and saw the driving range. I think the dri- driving range had like four or five top tracer monitors, so modern practice facility. Uh, created some space on the uh, – they moved some holes around to create more space for the driving range. Uh, the carts had Bluetooth speakers actually installed in them. So this is a, a club that's been around for a long time that is going through a huge transformation, One of probably one of the biggest in the country, and not a lot of people know about it. So – uh, a two-acre putting course is getting ready to open that has its own snack bar, and you know, that's really cool. That's going to be a huge revenue producer. It's going to have light. Ron Witten studied a bunch of the ones that he he's visited too, and you know, between our golf therapy columnist Bradley Klein and Ron Witten, I don't think there are two people that know more about golf courses than those two human beings and different golf courses. They know a lot. Also, shameless plug here, since you mentioned a two-acre putting course, there is a great feature by Judd Spicer in the June issue about putting courses and their current rise, more important, what they might be able to provide to any facility. So check that out as well. Yeah, and Todd, Ron, and I had some fun uh, throwing some balls around on the putting course that wasn't open yet, but just seeing some of the humps and bumps and it can be played in multiple directions and kind of figuring out, trying to figure out how somebody is going to shoot par on this thing. Remember <laughs> we played This Will Do It, Pinehurst, Matt? yes. I do. There was one hole that you gave up on. Yeah, we shot higher scores on the putting course at Pinehurst than we did on the cradle, or at least yeah. I did. Yeah, no, absolutely. So these putting courses are awesome. Uh, Judd's story is great. Uh, you know, I was sort of starstruck, I mean, to spend an evening with Ron Witten, someone that I've always looked up to and kind of wanted to do what he got to do for a long time, and we do that in our own little way at Golf Course Industry, and uh, he couldn't have been nicer or more gracious with his time, and he's so knowledgeable and you know, now he's doing some book writing and consulting on some projects. He's working with Todd Clark. You know, Ron lives in Kansas, so he's able to get the, the projects that Todd's doing pretty quickly. And Todd Clark is just doing tremendous work, too. You know, that's one of the beauties of the Tartan Talk series is to be able to tell stories like the one that Todd has. Maybe you don't hear about them in the mainstream golf publications, but I, I, I can tell you that, you know, people like Todd Clark and dozens of his ASGCA colleagues are doing work that's as good if not better than some of the big-name architects that you, you hear about over and over again, but they just don't get the big opportunities. Now, for Todd, living in Kansas City and getting a chance to renovate Oakwood Country Club and have some resources to do it and make some new holes, that's a, that's a huge opportunity for a golf course architect. It's not quite a new course, but it's going to be pretty darn close to being a new course for the membership there. But they are building a new course there, and this is where it got really interesting. This is what I thought you were talking about. Okay, so... Yeah, there's there's the uh, developer, Mr. Block, purchased some land behind the parking lot of the club, and it's going to be a par three course. Mm-hmm. Well, it's no, nothing 
close to a par three course. Not right, right now. But it's going to be a nine hole par three course uh, with some cottages. It's going to have a food and beverage, you know, shack in it. Uh, and you, the holes you, are going to be inspired by holes that Ron Witten has seen in his travels. So Ron has shown me on the his phone the inspiration for some of these holes. And then we just go walking. Todd, Ron, and I put our boots on and go walking through the woods. And they do have a little path cut out. But that's about it right now. And I'm trying to visualize what this This is why golf course architects and construction people and shapers and people like Ron Witten are so amazing. We're walking through the woods and all I can see is a bunch of trees and some topography and, you know, Ron and Todd are pointing out, Hey, tea's going to be here. Green's going to be here. I'm like, how do these people see this thing? This is literally been done for years now. You know, these architects get into dense old growth forest or, you know, areas that have no open space and they find nine or 18 golf holes. It's, it's amazing. Literally seeing the forest through the trees. Yeah. yeah, and I can't. Uh, maybe I just haven't done enough of it. Maybe I've come up in a golf writing era where there are not a lot of new golf courses being built, so we didn't really you know, get the opportunities like Ron Witten and Brad Klein did like 25, 30 years ago to walk around with an architect and you know, see it before it goes to construction. But it's going to be really cool to play. I guess it's going to have um, you know, greens and tees, and then it's going to be I – don't, I don't know what the word is – rustic in between the greens and tees. And you know, Todd showed me the plans for the course and the routing and – uh, you know, I did see a ridge line that they're going to build, I believe, the third hole around. And you see some of the rock out crop, croppings and boulders popping through the ground that are eventually going to get cleared out. And I'm sure it's going to be stunning. And I'm going to try to follow the project from start to finish. Uh, I don't know what the timeline is yet. But, you know, you talk about a club four or five years ago that was struggling, wasn't sure that it was going to survive. Uh, a person has a personal connection to it, buys it, puts some money into it, and now they're basically the most talked about golf course construction, private club project in that part of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So really cool to see. Great day. All the credit goes to Todd Clark for arranging this. I didn't have to do a darn thing except follow his truck and talk to people. And then after that, Matt, we went to an event called the Turf and Ornamental Communicators Association meeting. TOCA. TOCA. Short. And as part of our TOCA activities we got to see turf of another kind we'll let you take it away on this because you have a passion for these type of things right. not that i don't but you have more of a passion so a it. lot of times at toka it's to a golf course this time for whatever reason it was not a site visit to a golf course it was a site visit to arrowhead stadium uh, where travis hogan has done incredible work and travis hogan one of the really he would he would kind of frown on this but if you talk with people in sports fields, uh, he is really a superstar in that area. Uh, the work that he does at Arrowhead, you're able to see it, what, now 9 to 11 Sundays a year? Um, Growing Bermuda grass. In Kansas City. And we got to got a little stadium tour, saw the highs, saw the lows, saw the maintenance slash equipment building that he and his team have. I think the highlight, though, because they were in the process, they were about to take out that turf and put in new turf. He, by the way, he also handles all of the uh, uh, camp facilities, all the training facilities, so it's not just Arrowhead. I think he said he's got, what, seven or eight fields that he's responsible for, at least? And, and August for him. Oh, it's awful. It's 24-hour days almost. Yeah, I mean, you talk about 100 days of hell. He's got 100, probably 20-hour weeks uh, during training camp and into the into the start of the season. But they were in the process of 
starting to take out the turf at Arrowhead Stadium. So normally a lot of times you're not allowed to to touch the grass. You're not allowed to walk on the grass. There's a great scene in, I think, the first episode of Ted Lasso. Ted has made it across the Atlantic, and he is on the grounds for AFC Richmond, which is in reality Selhurst Park, uh, or the training grounds aren't, but the, the field where they play is Selhurst Park where Crystal Palace play. And he's on the on the field, and Nate, who was at that point the boot man, the equipment manager, runs across and says, get off the pitch. So that didn't happen to us. Nobody yelled at us to get off the field. And you and I ran a couple hundred meter sprints. We use that term loosely across the length of the field. That was pretty fun. Although you stopped at 40, didn't you? There might have been a 40-yard dash competition. You did You did 40. I kept going for 100. Uh, but Matt and I competed, air quotes, yeah. and a 40-yard dash at Arrowhead Stadium. We should have done 70. Split the difference. Should we tell the listeners what the winning time was? Slower than an offensive lineman, probably. 6.62 seconds was the winning time. <laughs> we won't tell the listeners who won. Uh, you're in but I was shape, pretty so. happy after it. And I would say, what, what struck you in the maintenance facility? Completely different than a golf course maintenance facility when you look at the oh, products yeah. and yeah. the equipment that they have. What, what struck out to you when we went in there? Or well, stru- struck you, not struck out. Struck out me. Uh, right across the streets, Kauffman Stadium, where the, the Royals play. So baseball right, it's, might it's, have been on, it's, on our mind. It's all part of the, the Truman Sports Complex, which we'll see how much longer those two teams are there. Uh, for a while, it was three teams that played there. The Royals and the Chiefs moved in in the 70s. And then the MLS team, which used to be known as the Wizards and then the Wiz. Wiz, then Wizards, I think. And now their Sporting KC used to play at Arrowhead. They have a beautiful uh, soccer-only facility off there. But Truman Sports Complex has been around for 50 years, and it's two stadiums surrounded by parking. It's very convenient. It's super easy. It's all this land, but it's also stadium design and layout of a bygone era. And so now there's talk that at least the Royals are going to move downtown. So how much longer there will be baseball? at the Truman Sports Complex, and two teams that play there. Who knows? Now, what struck me? That was really dodging the question there, Matt. What struck me? <laughs> no, I was circling back. You were the one who talked about baseball. Uh, I just wanted to make the point that there might not be baseball across the parking lot for much longer. What struck me going into Travis's maintenance facility, aside from the general organization, aside from... The NFL on CBS banners. Was there something I was supposed to see besides the organization? I'll tell you what struck me. Okay. The amount of paint in there. Paint. The yes. different types of yes. paint. Yes. The products, okay. the, the equipment that's used to apply paint. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many square feet this maintenance facility was, but I would say probably a quarter of it was devoted just to paint. Yeah. Well, and there, there are obviously a handful of really, really big paint companies. The, the largest one, Pioneer, not too far from our offices at all, honestly. Uh, and it's just something that you don't have to worry about a lot in golf. Maybe you occasionally paint a logo. Maybe you paint boundaries, but you're not painting precise lines constantly. You know, every day or every couple days, you're not painting hash marks. You're not painting end zones. Paint is a big, big deal. When I was at uh, SFMA, Sports Field Managers Association, conference in Charleston in January, um, 
Drew Miller's high school team from Brentsville District had the honor of being the first to paint the new SFMA logo. They changed their logo uh, at the opening ceremonies. And it was a huge deal that they were the ones who got to paint the logo on the turf outside the convention center. It's a huge deal. You are absolutely judged on your painting. It has to be precise. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, what would happen if the Chiefs came out on a Sunday and there was black and gold painted in the end zone instead of yellow and red. Could you imagine that, that well, you, situation? Well, you don't have to imagine your, I'm not going to say beloved Steelers because I don't know if you actually watch them. I don't watch NFL. There you go. But uh, we don't have to talk about what would happen because it actually did happen in a Snickers commercial. You remember the great googly moogly commercial, right? No? You don't remember that? So this was in the 90s. Oh, somebody listening is is saying, guy, come on, you're not that tuned out to pop culture. Okay, so there was a Snickers commercial in the 90s, mid-90s, late 90s, and it was ostensibly this much older grounds manager, groundkeeper, field manager, whatever he was supposed to be playing for the Chiefs, and he was painting the end zone, and somebody walks over and says, great job, end zones look fantastic. Who are the chefs? And in the commercial, he had left out the I, and I can't remember what Snickers was using as their slogan at the time. Now, obviously, it's uh, you're not you when you're hungry. But well, it, was, it was along those lines. And one last thing about Arrowhead, uh, Travis came up through a golf maintenance background. In fact, he worked for he some did. time at Pebble Beach and then worked at some facilities in the, the Kansas City market, and we had some time to chat with him about the differences between sports turf and golf course maintenance. And one thing that I found striking was that he said he's got no labor issues. They pay 20 bucks an hour mm-hmm. and they're able to find people. Yep. A part of it, I think is the allure of working at an NFL stadium. You're not there to watch the game, but you do get to see a little bit, uh, around your work. You're, you're focusing on your work, but you're still working in an NFL stadium. And I think that appeals to a lot of people, not that watching golf doesn't appeal to a lot of people, But it's essentially, if your work was being a tournament volunteer every week rather than working at a private 18-holer or a municipal 36-holer or something like that, and you're watching folks from around the city go out and play their four or five-hour rounds. So it's it's something different in the background. Um, I think that's a big allure. So one last thing about Kansas City. Okay. What type of food is Kansas City known for, Matt? Um, well, when I went first time in 2005, I ate a lot of Dixon's chili, which was Truman's favorite. And it was actually not too far from Truman Sports Complex, but I know where you're going with you're this. You're dodging the question again. I'm taking the year off of meat. I've had plenty of Kansas City barbecue, but you are not taking the year off of meat and you ate plenty of Kansas City barbecue last month. Well, I got a question for you first. How do you go to Kansas City and avoid the barbecue. How were you able to do it? Where have you found this discipline to, to do what you've been doing um, over the past year? I don't know. Just a decision to try to not eat meat for a year. I mean, it's easier than it was the last time I did it in high school and college. Were you tempted at all in Kansas City? Yeah. I think there have probably been two times when I would have liked to have had meat this year so far in the first five months. The first was when we went to Chicago, and I had to get a cheese pizza rather than a sausage pizza at my favorite pizzeria, Aurelio's, in Homewood, Illinois. And Kansas City was the second. I avoided it by not going out 
with you and Russ Warner, our national sales manager, or anybody else at Toka, to a top-tier barbecue shack. If I had done that, and I had smelled the burnt ends, or the pulled pork, or any other part of the animal, I probably would have caved. Because it smells amazing, and it tastes better. Oh, these things are far from shacks. So I went to three places, Q39 the first night, the second night, our event for Toka was catered by Joe's. And then the third night, Russ Warner, Chad Wurtzema from Foley, mm. and myself went to Char Bar. Mm. And Q39 and Char Bar were like modern restaurants. These weren't roadside shacks. The shacks are still great. So on those three nights, I had brisket and chicken at Q39. Then at our catered event, we had turkey pork and i believe it was brisket i thought there were ribs and ribs, ribs oh it, ribs from joe's yeah i do love ribs and then at char bar we had burn ends or which were amazing burn ends are amazing uh smoked sausage what else did i have on my plate <laughs> ribs or pulled pork i can't even remember <laughs> i had so much barbecue and then skillet mac and cheese at char bar Okay. So and let you, me tell you. So you had enough iron for we only went about to th- a month. Three places. Yeah. There are dozens upon dozens of barbecue joints in Kansas City. And you know, between the golf courses that we saw and the barbecue that we ate, or at least I ate, I can't wait to get back there. And, you know, we've become barbecue enthusiasts at golf course industry, Matt. We have not to the degree. There are, I would say right now, maybe we'll become the fourth Mecca, but there are three Meccas for barbecue in the country. And one of them, obviously, is Kansas City. One is the Carolinas. And within the Carolinas, there's East and West. I've always been an East guy because I prefer a vinegar base to a tomato base. And then there's Texas. And you've brought this up, that the great magazine, Texas Monthly, has a barbecue editor whose job is to cover barbecue in the state. That's pretty amazing. You've sort of created this position for yourself over the last year and a half with our... I'll just say, pretty successful, hashtag Turfheads Grilling social media campaign. I think that's where you were going with this. Well, I mean, the credit really goes to our friend from Aquade Solutions, Bill Brown, the mm-hmm. director of marketing there, and his team, President Sam Green and the others, uh, to get behind the project. And also our national sales manager, Russ Warner, is really our, our pit master here at Golf Course Industry. And yeah, before we end this podcast, we do have a grilling campaign. It's hashtag Turfheads Grilling. Just type it into Twitter. All one word. You'll see us posting all sorts of pictures of what we're grilling at home or when the places we're eating on the road. Uh, you go to our website. You'll see links. You can submit your own recipe in the December Turfheads Takeover issue. We're going to do our second annual Turfheads Guide to Grilling, which are your grilling recipes. Get selected for that. You're going to receive a spices and sauces kit sent to you. Last year it was cutting boards. This year it's a spices and sauces kit selected by Russ Warner. And good stuff in there, too. Oh, really good stuff. You also get, you know, even if you don't get picked, you know, anyone that submits will get some swag from Golf Course Industry and Aquade Solutions. There's stickers, pins, koozies. Mm -hmm. We might have given all the koozies away. We're going to have to look into that. We can always order more. This is the really cool thing. So if you're in the guide, so one of the recipes or one of the submissions to the guide will be selected for a team cookout next year. We will come to your course and cook for you. And we just did this, but we're going to talk about it on another green. So if you want us 
to cook for your team in 2023, submit something to the Turfhead's Guide to Grilling. And we were really inspired by some of the things we saw in Kansas City. I think Russ is trying to make his own version of burn ends. Uh, Russ is in sales, so he makes the big bucks. I might try to make poor man's burn ends. But we, we got some ideas, and it's a really fun program. You can read all about it in the print magazine. It's all over Twitter, hashtag Turfheads Grilling at the at Golf Course Industry GCI Magazine account and at Solutions for the number four mm-hmm. turf Aquaid Solutions. And what a fun program. What a fun trip to Kansas City. And, yeah, we got some cool things planned for this summer. Well, I think that's it for episode 41 of Greens with Envy, kicking it in Kansas City. For my friend and colleague, golf course industry editor-in-chief, Guy Cipriano, thank you to him for talking for most of the last hour, and thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. You can catch new episodes of Greens with Envy, Off the Course, Tartan Talks, and Beyond the Page just about every Tuesday. We have Real Turf Techs with Trent Manning on the third Wednesday of each month, Wonderful Women of Golf with Rick Wolfel on the first Thursday of each month. Our May issue, our June issue, will be online a little later this month. Some fantastic stories in there. We already mentioned a large cover package about a certain social media app that is not QQ and not TikTok. Or Bumble. Or Tinder. Bumble or any of those. And a great... Hey, I met my wife on Bumble. Let's not make it works. too much it works. fun of it. No, but it works. It's just not what I think of when I think of a social media app. That's all, but it is. Uh, great feature by Judd Spicer about putting courses and a lot more. You can check that out at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. If you subscribe to the magazine, you'll get that in your mailbox before too much longer as well. Guy mentioned... Subscribe to the Fast and Firm email newsletter as well. That's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. You can sign up directly on the homepage, www.golfcourseindustry.com. And I don't normally read the credits here in Greens with Envy, but I have them in front of me, so let's do it. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton, America's greenkeeper himself. We have some fantastic regular contributors to Trent Bouts, Tyler Bloom, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, our summer intern, Casty Glado, Trent Manning, Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Russ Warner is our national sales manager. Caitlin Sellers and Amanda Cafardi make sure everything goes where it should. Christina Warner, make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle, make sure we all get paid. Always important. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody in this building can keep straight. Ryan Jacobs, Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Ballman, Brock Andrada, and Patrick Briand are our IT team. Our president is Chris Foster. And above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thank you so much for listening.